0: Welcome to the Whiskey, Jazz, and Leadership Podcast. Subscribe now so you don't miss a drop of straight talk you can't get anywhere else. We discuss the whiskeys to drink, music to listen to, and what it really takes to be an effective leader. I'm your host, Galen Bingham, the leadership strategist. Tonight's guest, certified emotional intelligence meta coach and co founder of diversity and inclusion consultancy, The Darkest Horse. Rada Yavovich. Hey, what you drinking? Okay, come on in here. You you guys know what we're doing. (laughs) You know what we're doing. I just, I don't play around when I bring my guest in. And these are just friends. These are just people that I know. So uh, this conversation, this is someone that I met and we were in a class together. She was kind of doing her thing and I was kind of doing my thing and switch chairs and meet somebody, talk to someone. And when we ended up talking to each other, there was something that resonated. And you may remember when I talked with Wyman Winbush, he said that when you've got two pianos in the room And you hit the C on one piano, the the C chord on the other piano will vibrate. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's what was going on here. We
1: attuned.
0: (laughs) So Rada Yavovich, I am so excited to have you Mm -hmm. on this episode of Whiskey Jazz and Leadership. Come on in the room. Welcome.
1: (laughs) Why? Thank you. Thank you. Folks listening at home can't hear the smile on my face. I'm going to pull a muscle smiling so much, but it's, I'm very delighted to be here. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm going to try to remember when I when I asked you to be part of this, I think your uh, response was, I'm going to try to get this right. Heck yeah! <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's so exactly right. We're going to get into some really good questions because if you heard the bio, if you read the bio, you you know... How deep this water is going to get? So I'm going to ask some questions to try to, to try to tread water behind this giant in this space. But the first question, and a lot of people say it's the most important question: What are you drinking?
1: Mm-hmm. Can you hear? Oh gosh, I just spilled it on myself trying to make the ice clink for you. I am drinking a little rye. I brought the bottle over so I could at least show you. It's called Sagamore Spirit. It's made in Baltimore. It was a gift from a friend and I'm really enjoying it.
0: All right. Well, fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, one of the things I learned about you mm-hmm. is that your everyday is like one of, my, one of my near the top shelf. It's like shelf number two for me. Eagle Rare is like your everyday. I enjoyed that a few episodes ago. Uh, and then Buffalo Trace. But mm-hmm. one of the things I've learned is that you are a fan of Japanese whiskey. I've got some Japanese whiskey, and when I was first introduced to Japanese whiskey, I think I was in Sherman Oaks, California, and was hanging out with some folks, and we went into a bar, and uh, we were kind of celebrating, and so I tried to play big baller, so I told the barkeep, hey, what's the most expensive whiskey you got over there? Uh And he brought out some Hibiki 12-year, quite good, quite tasty, I think uh, that year it had just become the whiskey of the year. And so I became a big fan. But that's not what I'm going to drink tonight. What I'm going to drink tonight is I've got some Hibiki 17.
1: Yes. Oh, my goodness.
0: Which I'm going to go ahead. I haven't hit this in a while. And the reason I haven't is because they've stopped creating the age notations for the Hibiki. It's just the Hibiki Centuri. And so you can't get the 12 year, you can't get the 17 year. And I saw a 21 year and it, it scared the bejesus out of me. So I didn't get that, but I'm going to open this up because. Yeah, that's some nice whiskey. Yeah, this is the right here. <laughs> All right. So yeah, it's got a little crystal.
1: Oh, and I could hear it. You've done this before.
0: <laughs> yeah. So now we're, we're the, um, the 12 year is more like a scotch. It's got more of that scotch, that peat feel to it. Oh my gosh. Oh, yeah, I'm going to sit and enjoy this. <laughs> I would love for you to just share with my audience just a little bit more of your background so that they can understand some of the cool ass friends I've got.
1: Yeah. Thank you for that invitation. Thank you again for having me. Thank you for being wonderful. Thank you for being my friend. I'll say things that feel important to include in that story are both of my parents are artists but they're both like technical, like engineering artists, right? My mom is a visual artist, but she like works with very like highly technical media, like titanium. And my dad is um, a writer, but he writes about very technical topics. Like he, he was a mathematician until he decided to be a writer, you know? And so, so I kind of come from this sort of like both sides of the brain kind of upbringing. And so my, my background, I, I wanted to be a teacher my whole life. I actually got most of a master's in education, specifically in like urban education, trauma-informed practices, and then made this like, had this idea in my head that the world of business was cool and exciting. And so I pivoted into consulting I kind of wish I could go back and like actually understand exactly how that thought process went, but it was great. I was a consultant. I did healthcare consulting for like six years until I realized that the road warrior life was rough. What's also interesting is during that time I was also playing premier league rugby. So I was playing for the number two rugby team in the country. And (laughs) so I was traveling for consulting, traveling for rugby. I was, my twenties were fast and hard and then i i stopped consulting and i started i discovered that like data science in consulting i always had the like most thorny data sets like whatever was the messiest data that's where they put me um and i loved it i was like a kid in a sandbox you know and when i pivoted into not consulting i started doing data analytics and and data science predictive analytics and stuff like that specifically in healthcare um and healthcare tech so A lot of my career has been healthcare technology. And like throughout that, I was also doing kind of inclusion work on the side, you know, just because like this whole coaching thing was just like an exciting and interesting hobby, you know, and so there's all these kind of different pieces that were different threads. And I made it pretty far in my like corporate career. I was like working in different technology companies. I was leading growth strategy for a healthcare company and then was doing this like, coaching and inclusion work just like you know in my spare time and really kind of had this realization that like I am an entrepreneur that those things that I was kind of treating as side hustles were like really lighting me up and that I wanted to see what it would be like to like build my own stuff and to like free myself of the entire construct of the boss right both of having one and being one like I'm like not really into those kinds of hierarchy <laughs> models and so it's been you know a bunch of years now and I'm still doing it, building stuff. I'm um, doing a lot of coaching and facilitating a lot of equity and inclusion work. Yeah. Being a constant learner, you know, I'm just like always picking up new toys. I don't call them tools anymore. I call them toys and just like seeing how they feel, you know, and how they can kind of change and and like shift how I see stuff and then how that helps me
0: see other people shift stuff. I love that. First of all, I love that you called them toys. yeah. And and I'll tell you, you know, w- one of the things that really became kind of a revelation for me uh, in my own journey is the fact that we're all trying to figure this thing out. The parts of us that don't fit, we we usually try to make that uh-huh. fit. We try to. I think one of your quotes is, you know, sanding off. You know, don't sand off the edges, right? Uh-huh. But that's what we do. You know, part of my coming out that I talk about a lot is just realizing that there's no use trying to make everybody happy because everybody's upset anyway. You might as well just enjoy it, right?
1: Uh-huh. Make yourself the happy one, right? Yeah. You, know?
0: you yeah. know? So when I think of the idea of whiskey, jazz, and leadership, three things that on the surface don't necessarily fit, but in my head they fit, that feels like rata. <laughs> yes. You know, where you've got these pieces that on the surface how in the world do you uh-huh. go from being a teacher to being a consultant to playing rugby? Yeah. That yeah. doesn't seem like it fits. But that's what makes you you.
1: Yeah, I contain multitudes, right? So do you. We all we all do. And I I think yeah, and it's funny as soon as I like finished my intro I was like, "Oh god, I didn't like say other important stuff like I'm cis white queer woman, you know, mostly able-bodied actually hearing impaired, you know, like there are all these other sort of like Like, really important identity things about me. And and I think, yeah, what you're pointing to is like the beauty of intersectionality, right? We are all of those things at once. We're not just one thing at a time. We're not just a father, right? Or just an athlete, or just a computer scientist, or just, you know, we are a whole bunch of things all at once. And I realized super early on that my favorite kind of person is the kind of person that I've never met before, you know, that when I meet them, I'm like, ooh, You're different. You know, a lot of that is credit to, you know, the security of my youth. It was safe to be different. Like I, the kinds of different that I am have mostly always been pretty safe. You know, I mean, there's obviously ways that being a woman is really unsafe ways of being queer is really unsafe, you know, things like that. But like that, when you have that kind of resource, when you have that kind of security difference is exciting, right? And difference is growth and difference is learning and difference is like art. You sand down the edges. There's no art in that when you are assimilating, when you're being just like the person you see in the magazine, there's no surprise in that. And there's a lot of safety. What I'm obsessed with doing is trying to create the kind of sense of safety and security in the world for people individually that makes them feel and know the thing that is the most unusual about them is the best thing about them. And I do think that that's not just something you tell people. It's something that you
0: prove to people. Mm that's exactly where where i was wanting to go you know i talked about the the program that we were in you know pretty heady stuff right really really brilliant people uh not only leading the program but attending the program Mm -hmm. and so we're we're having all this highbrow i think they call it (laughs) highbrow conversation Mm -hmm. and then after the session was over you know a group would always flock to the bar And so you know, I'm like trying to find where's the crew that's flocked to the bar. And so I I find this crew, and there's a about a handful, maybe about six or seven guys, and Rada, (laughs) and you know, and it's like, okay, I remember Rada from from class, but Rada's like mixing it up. She's holding her own. She's not sitting in the corner Uh admiring the the the. Yeah, I'm not
1: a wallflower. Yeah.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So my question to you is, it's one thing to elevate to this point of feeling comfortable with your differences, Uh but you always impress me as leveraging your differences. Uh It's like you are leaning into your differences. It's Uh like very clear that this is what you know, and the reason you know it is because of your difference. Uh What does that courage come from? yo this is galen i'm excited to announce that now you can support the whiskey jazz and leadership podcast as a patron click the link wherever you hear this message to get more information and to register but check this out at just a one dollar per month patron level you get access to the what's next newsletter sent to your email box each month that's where you will learn information about upcoming guests get more detail about my private stock whiskey collection, and you'll learn about my new jazz favorites as soon as I fall in love with them and much, much more. $8 per month, you become a VIP. And as a VIP, you'll gain access to special VIP content each guest has recorded specifically for VIPs. And you are able to join the whiskey, jazz, and leadership community On Facebook, LinkedIn, and Clubhouse. For $13 per month, you become a private stock VIP. That's where all the real fun happens. You will have access to written transcripts of each episode. An invitation to live tapings of future episodes and access to invitation-only opportunities to interact with me and our guests during monthly Q&A live events and lots of other surprises. We're stepping up our game to give you more insight and special access. I hope you join us. Cheers. (laughs) Cheers.
1: What a good question. <laughs> Where does that courage come from? I mean, I'm going to kind of keep going back to this idea of art and creativity that I think that I learned how inspiring difference can be. I've never been in both like metaphorically or literally, I've never been small, right? Like I was born the size of like a small adult, you know, like this is, I guess there's a million stories. My dad's buddies used to refer to my oldest sister as Princess Laudra and then refer to me as Conan as in the barbarian. Like I was a big, strong baby. I think it's one of those things that like, there's some things that you can't cover, you know, that like are just true and the world's going to see it. And so you can either spend all your time apologizing and minimizing trying to cover or saying like, look, everybody keeps pointing out to me that this is true. I'm just going to like live that truth, you know, like there's no escaping it. No one's ever going to see me as small, literally or metaphorically. I might as well be big and powerful. A big part of my narrative, my story has always been using my power for good, being big in a way that invites other people to show up fully instead of a way that like edges people out. That can be a tough balance for folks with like strong personalities, strong opinions, clarity and like who we are it's not like it's just been easy. I definitely had the Rada smash years, you know, where (laughs) where I hadn't figured out how to use my powers for good. And I I used them for some evil. The biggest thing for that is like, it feels good to be aligned, you know, and it feels good to be authentic. Like it actually literally in your body, I've always been like very sort of body attuned, partially because of being an athlete, partially because I had a friend's mom who taught me like, progressive relaxation and meditation stuff really young, I can tell when something doesn't feel good. I don't tolerate that super well. Yeah. That kind of authenticity just like makes my body loose, you know, makes me ready for action. And that's how I like to be.
0: I love the fact that, and you've talked a little bit about this power that seems to come with you. That's part of the package. And I don't know that I've ever been in a conversation or in a group conversation with you where at some point we did not understand your point of view. At some point, but at the same time, I have seen you have compassion with all the spaces that you're in, all the labels that you can use to identify yourself. I have seen you not snap at people, but educate them once they've demonstrated that they are earnestly trying to educate, and you've done it with a patience that I don't know that I would have had. As a matter of fact, I was like, no, no, what you need to do, and you were like, no, no, this is an opportunity. Mm-hmm. So again, just two parts that you, I don't really expect from a rugby, a rugby player.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm not all brute force. There's a little bit of finesse in there. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I really appreciate you reflecting that. Cause yeah, that's, that's definitely one of those things that I'm always trying to do. Right. And so I'm actually right now I'm involved in a program with um, somebody named Resma Menicum. I don't know if you're familiar with his work. He wrote a book called My Grandmother's Hands. He's really phenomenal. His primary focus is around healing racialized trauma. And he takes a sort of trauma approach toward understanding how white supremacy sort of like ruins everything and really understanding that trauma lives in the body, right? Mm -hmm. So he thinks about like the way that we move through and out of white supremacy is by metabolizing it through our system. And so it's all about the somatic awareness. And one of the biggest things that he always talks about that just like, resonates so much for me is you can't have urgency in healing work. Can't be impatient to get to an outcome. And that the process is the work, right? It's not the product. You know, somatics and stuff are about moving, right? They're not about getting you. And being in the inclusion and equity work, I encounter lots of folks who are pretty racist, right? And pretty homophobic and pretty sexist and like whether they want to admit it or not. And I can't come at them with an urgency that to fix them, right? This is why I talk about toys instead of tools. It's like, I'm not here to fix you. I'm here to like be in process with you. I'm here if you want to be here with me. And if you don't want to be here, I'm not going to chase you. That's going to be me spending a bunch of energy on something that's not going to access you. Patience is definitely a word for it, right? And I, and I define patience specifically not as the ability to wait, but as knowing that things take time.
0: Wow. My pastor used to say, uh, you can either say amen or you can say, ouch. That's an ouch moment for me Mm. because patience is just recognizing that things take time Mm -hmm. and you might not see the pieces moving, but have confidence that they are moving in the direction that they, that they want to be.
1: Trying to force them faster actually slows them down. (laughs) You know,
0: I've got an expert on the line here, so I've got some questions that I'm going to summon some courage <laughs> to have this confidence. So I'm going to hit this Hibiki17 one more yes. time. Yes,
1: great, before, cheers.
0: Before, before I go in.
1: <laughs> oh, I'm excited. All
0: right, here we go. Here we mm-hmm. go. I have really started as of late getting into DEI space. That's not my background, right? That's not my training. More of a leadership dude. And I'm coming from leadership from a from a general manager's perspective. So I'm not even mm-hmm. I'm not even coming into leadership from an HR perspective. It's mm-hmm. okay, how can I leverage the people around me to deliver this result that my stakeholders are looking for? Yeah. And one of the things that we talk about a lot is is white supremacy. And it makes a lot of people nervous. hmm why do you think that makes a lot of people nervous? Even to the point where I have been part of groups where clients have brought us in to have this conversation and then they have fired us because they said, wait a second, you're saying that that we are a white supremacist organization. We've got these tenants inside our organization. Well, that's mm-hmm. why you kind of brought us in, mm-hmm. right? Why does that make people nervous to recognize that?
1: Well, first of all, I want to give you like snaps for using that language with people because the, I have a couple of reasons that I think that folks are really uncomfortable about it. One, in a general sense, and this is actually something that came up in our, the emotional intelligence program that we did. Naturally, people are really uncomfortable with injustice and with unfairness. There are these like experiments where you play a card game with somebody, the deck is stacked. And like eventually they sort of notice it even before their brain notices that it's stacked, their body notices and starts sweating and their heart rate increases and stuff like that. And like when you perceive that there is an injustice, even when it's in your favor, it's uncomfortable. White supremacy is the most mass produced injustice in history. It is the most pervasive. It is the most effective. It's the most systematic. It's the most like ubiquitous injustice that there has ever been in humankind. And that's really uncomfortable. Honestly, anybody who's running an organization that finds that there is white supremacy, you know integrated throughout it, which heads up every organization, right? Because capitalism as a, as a system is white supremacist, you know so like pretty impossible to avoid it. But realizing that your baby, this precious thing that you are a steward of, has been infected just like everything else, mm. is uncomfortable. It is completely fair and appropriate that folks are scared having fear. About oppression is not a failure. It's a part of the process. Like you can't, Mm. if you don't move through a phase where you're really scared and helpless, you're not really looking at it.
0: Mm. Wow. I love thinking about it that way that my baby is is infected, you know. Mm -hmm. And one of the biggest aha's that I came to actually in my own research, my own learning, trying to get ready for that work is just understanding that that happens at multiple levels there's the individual mm-hmm. the individual level how i show up and then there's the systemic the systems that are in place mm-hmm. and i can be a level-headed god-fearing good person mm-hmm. one-on-one and still benefit from a system mm-hmm. that is stacked in my favor and vice versa and very often people will think This can't be a racist system because I'm a good person. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah, I mean, and this is this is part of why it's been so exciting that particularly in the last year, um, you know, in this sort of like racial reckoning since George Floyd's murder, that the the term anti-racist is like a common household term now. Right. The one of the things that I love about the like whole anti-racist movement is that you don't have to be cured of it to be doing it. Step number one of being anti-racist is knowing that you are definitely racist, whether you are committing, you know, explicit hate crimes based on race or not, like you have internalized these things, you know, like unconscious bias is real and systems like your assumptions, your expectations about how systems work is completely colored by how you move through the world and how you experience it and what happens, what the cause and effect of every experience you've ever had throughout your life. So yes, you have internalized it. And the first step is saying, oh, uh uh-oh, I've internalized it. And I think the other piece that I wanted to throw in about your question about, like, why is this so uncomfortable is the, like, number one rule of white supremacy is keep white people comfortable. Every other rule sort of comes from that. One of the things that makes white people uncomfortable is talking about race, (laughs) specifically the words white supremacy. Oh, and so anytime that anybody says the words white supremacy, you are breaking the rules of our unstated agreement that we have to keep white people comfortable. And that makes everybody uncomfortable. Black folks who have gotten into the room have done so by following that number one rule of keeping white people comfortable. And so their systems, their nervous systems will freak out when you say that because they're like, don't do that. You're going to piss off the white people, you know, like you're going to mess this up for everybody. There's a lot of effort to protect that comfort. It's mostly unconscious, but it's really powerful. Every time that I point out that was racist, like what you just said, my system tells me don't do that. Don't make them uncomfortable, you know, like every time. And it's just, it's just a matter of getting the reps in, you know, and just like, getting used to it and being like, well, I'm going to do it anyway. I'm, yeah, People who haven't had that brought up to them before, that shock, that physical reaction to hearing the words white supremacy is overwhelming.
0: Hey, it's not too late. Hit that subscribe button so you're sure to catch the next episode. If you're really enjoying the vibe, leave us a review or become a VIP for guests and show exclusives. Cheers.